Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. This amazing stranger from the planet Krypton, the man of steel. Who are you? A friend. Look. Up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's, it's... Superman. 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 This looks like a job for Superman. Superman Forever Radio, the weekly podcast devoted to the Man of Steel. Hello everyone, welcome back to Superman Forever Radio. I'm your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder, and this is episode 38. This week we begin the first of a two-part look at the Superman comics cover dated December 2007. Why two parts? Because three out of four of the books we cover had two issues with the December cover date. So this week we look at those with the cover date of early December and one with a simple cover date of December before looking next week at the late December books. Before we do that, there's something I want to touch upon, actually a couple of things. Uh, I have three things all together. The marriage of Clark Kent and Lois Lane in the San Diego Comic-Con and the movement of Superman the Man of Steel from December 2012 to June of 2013. So, this episode is hitting on the same day the Comic-Con is getting underway. Clearly, I'm not there. I am not in San Diego. I know John M. Wilson is, so I hope he's having a great time. But I, I am stuck here in my, my little podcast studio. I don't get that many travel opportunities, and I use my main one to go to Metropolis. So, there you go. But there is a planned protest against the DC reboot at the SDCC. This is apparently heated up even more with some of the information that we saw released just this past week on the subject. We now have confirmation that Superman's marriage to Lois Lane will be done away with, as well as the fact that Jonathan and Martha Kent will be deceased in the new continuity. Okay, I'm a big supporter of the marriage. I'm a fan of Lois and Clark being married because it does give Superman an anchor, a place beyond Smallville or the fortress where he can drop his guard. I'm also a fan of Jonathan and Martha being around to give Superman that moral background and guidance. But we must remember that for the first 50 years, give or take, of Superman's existence, Jonathan and Martha appeared in flashbacks and Superboy stories. And for almost 60 years, the Lois Clark Superman love triangle existed and it worked. I'm not throwing my hat in to support or condemn the reboot in any way. I've decided to abstain and let DC do what they want. They clearly don't need my blessing. But there is a point in fandom when you kind of need to open up your options and try to look at things objectively. And there are new stories to be told, and we don't know yet whether these new universe stories will be a boon or a bane to the comic book world. So my advice, and you can take it or leave it, my advice is to reserve judgment until September when the books come out. And this applies to those protesting at the San Diego Comic-Con. We're all supposed to be in this hobby for fun. We're supposed to enjoy it. If the current direction of the Superman books doesn't sit well with you, remember that there are plenty of back issues out there, available in many, many forms, and somewhere there exists your own version of Superman. Now, thirdly, as I mentioned, they're moving Superman the Man of Steel from 
December of 2012 to June 14th of 2013. Yes, I'm a little bit bummed that we have to wait six months longer, but there's several good aspects of this. A, they're moving it away from the Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn Part 2. They're moving it away from The Hobbit. They're moving it away from several things where it really could have been lost in the mire. If you remember, Superman Returns did pretty well its opening weekend and then was thoroughly trashed by Pirates of the Caribbean. And we're dealing with, especially with uh, Twilight Saga, the last Twilight Saga movie, and and uh, The Hobbit. We're dealing with two things that have very, very, very hardcore fans. And I know Superman does too. I'm one of them. You're one of them if you're listening to this. But we maybe don't take it to the extent that these people do. And, of course, I, I'm a fan of the, the Tolkien books and the movies. Not so much of the Twilight Saga, but, uh, you know, I, I look forward to that movie as well. So there's a lot of things they're moving away from. Secondly, they're moving it to a June of 2013 release. June. It is a summer tentpole. That means, hopefully, that Warner Brothers feels so strongly about this that it can support its own weight that they want to put it in a summertime spot. Um, that looks like a, a good vouch for me. As much as I would like to see a Superman and Batman movie in the same year... I'm okay with the direction this is taken, even if I am just a bit bummed, because hopefully that just gives Zack Snyder and company a little bit more time to even out the movie, put in some special effects, make sure it's done exactly right. At least that's my hope. So, with all that said, I'm ready to look at this week's comic book issues. So right after this promo, we'll dive right into December of 2007, and along the way, look at the fourth world, as well as Lana Lang's animated return. So stay with me and I'll be back in two and two. The Superman Fan Podcast is turning over a new leaf for 2011. With the growth of Superman Podcasts in 2010 covering the Golden Age of Superman, the Bronze Age Superman, the post-crisis Superman as well as current Superman stories, I noticed that there was not a podcast which covered the Silver Age of Superman stories. And since I began reading comic books in the early to mid-1960s, right in the middle of the Silver Age, I decided it would be a perfect opportunity for me to cover the Silver Age of Superman stories. One week I will cover the Superman family of titles, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, World's Finest Comics, and eventually Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. The next week, I will cover the Man of Steel's titles of Superman and Action Comics, as well as the Supergirl stories. And I will alternate episodes in this fashion through 1970, when Mark Weisinger retired. The home website is at supermanfanpodcast.mypodcast.com, and expanded show notes are at supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com. Your emails are welcome at supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com and I look forward to reading them. The Superman Fan Podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network, which you can find at www.fortressofbailey2.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork, where you can find all of the podcasts covering every era of the Man of Steel. Episodes are also available on iTunes. 
So join me each week as we fly through the time barrier and journey through the Silver Age adventures of Superman. And kicking off our look at the Superman books from December 2007 is Action Comics number 857, cover dated early December 2007, but actual release date would have been October 17th of 2007, two days before my birthday. And this is Escape from Bizarro World Chapter 3, Hide and Seek, which will conclude the storyline. It was written by Jeff Johns and Richard Donner, with art by Eric Powell, letters by Rob Lay. It was lettered by Nick DePoliano as well, colored by David Stewart, edited by Matt Idelson with associate editor Nachi Castro, and Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And this was reprinted in Superman Escape from Bizarro World, both in a hardcover and trade paperback form. Now the cover shows us a Bizarro Justice League comprised of Bizarro himself, and twisted versions of The Flash, Hawkgirl, Green Lantern, Wonder Woman, and Batman. And the issue opens with a flashback. Again. And in this flashback, young Clark lists his powers with Paw, including heat vision, telescopic vision, x-ray vision, flight, etc., etc. And Paw, Clark asks Paw what power he would like to have, and Paw says, the power to keep you from growing so fast. Aw, it's warm and fuzzy, but it has next to nothing to do with the story we're looking at. Which picks up with Pawn Superman surrounded by an angry mob of Bizarro World citizens, with Bizarro himself beside them, and the Bizarro JLA having just landed on a bizarre version of Doomsday like the Wicked Witch of the East. And for the sake of keeping this synopsis in a form that will not cause insanity, assume that Beyond Superman and Paw, when I refer to a character going forward with this synopsis, it's a bizarro version of them. Just for some, that's a lot of bizarros. And that will keep us from fighting, and I like to keep the peace. And the Flash himself, he's rotund, he's extremely slow. Uh, Batman wants to study Superman in his bat treehouse. Hawkgirl uses Wonder Woman's own lasso to tie her up to make Luthor tell the, well, a lie. And the Yellow Lantern scares the crowd with a construct before being forced to rejoin the Sinestro Corps, which is a nice bit of continuity. You would almost think that the same person was writing both series, as the Sinestro Corps war was happening at this very same time. Scared by the Yellow Lantern's construct, Lois bolts off and the crowd begins to overtake Bizarro as the JLA loses their footing in the fight. So Bizarro uses his new Bizarro vision to power zap Batman and we get bizarro versions of Robin, Green Arrow, and Aquaman, which is incredibly amusing and awesome for exactly two panels before Doomsday crushes them into pulpy goo. And the entire JLA sets their sights on Doomsday, who has his own sights set on Paw. Superman is unable to help because he's swarmed by the mob, and Jonathan Kent is about to be smashed by Doomsday, and just then something happens. Superman panics and shoots multicolored beams out of his eyes that hits Paw just before Doom Doomsday's fist does. Furious at his father's fate, Superman breaks free and flies right at Doomsday, knocking him down. And Superman looks down at the crater where Pa Kent stood and is shocked to find his dad completely unhurt. Superman asks Jonathan if he's okay, and Jonathan replies that he feels better than okay, and then proceeds to punch the crap out of Doomsday. And then Pa Kent flies. This allows Superman to get and his dad to get away, while Lex Luthor vows to get the 
every key to every prison on Bizarro World and free the prisoners to bring them up, to bring them in and bring about the death of Bizarro. Away from the crowd, Paul and Superman reason that the blue sun gave Clark a sort of Superman vision, and the beam has given Paul all of Superman's powers. Superman urges Paul to get back to the rocket, since they don't know how long the effects will last. Paul, however, pleads with Clark to help the Bizarros, since it isn't their fault they're so different. As if on cue, Bizarro pops out of the nearby bushes, and Paul has a sweet heart-to-heart -heart with Bizarro about how the citizens of Bizarro World don't belong to Bizarro just because he created them. And Bizarro asks Paul how to destroy Bizarro World. Instead, Paul asks, what about fixing it? Elsewhere, elsewhere Luthor is about to release the prisoners of Arkham Amusement Park when Superman shows up. Superman insists that he is not working with Bizarro and sets about repairing Metropolis, which terrifies the citizens. So just then, Bizarro himself shows up and begins to fight Superman, which wrecks the city in the process. And Jimmy and Perry have a change of heart, and they capture Luthor as the Bizarros cheer on their new hero. And even Lois looks at Bizarro with adoration rather than fear. And with Bizarro's status greatly improved on Bizarro World, Superman and Pa Kent get ready to board the rocket and head back home. And Superman wonders out loud if Bizarro realized what they were really trying to do with the ruse. And to answer the question, Bizarro flies down from the sky with a parting gift and a heartfelt, heart, heartfelt, heartfelt thank you for Pa. And the gift turns out to be a handmade Superman costume. And Jonathan tells Clark that Bizarro understands the ruse just fine. As Superman and Pa can't fly away, back to Earth, Bizarro waves and begins to say hello, but corrects himself and accurately says goodbye. And back on Earth, Pa tries to show off his powers for Ma, but by now, the effects have worn off under the yellow sun. Martha tells Jonathan that she's just glad that it didn't hurt him. And Jonathan corrects her. Not it. Him. A little later, Clark and Pa sit on the porch in the starlight. And Clark tells his father, thank you. When Pa asks what the thank you is for, Clark explains that it's for making sure he was never alone. Even if he thought he was. Back on Bizarro World, a bizarre version of Brainiac, the dumbest Bizarro of all, puts his master plan into effect to give up and blow up the building he and the police were standing in. Just then, something tunnels beneath the streets and the citizens call out, Look, down in the ground. It's a mole. It's a submarine. And out of the ground pops Bizarro with a plaque on his chest reading Bizarro number one, announces himself as he hoists a car in the air in an homage to Action Comics number one. Bizarro Lois looks on and gushes, which leads Jimmy to ask, If you love Bizarro so much... Why don't you marry him and make other bizarros? And as the issue closes, Lois tells Jimmy that she always wanted a family. And you know, a few months back, I guessed it on Michael Bailey's podcast, Views from the Long Box. And we brought up the storyline that we just read, and I remembered liking it. And Michael mentioned the whole message of the arc was, I love my dad. I defended it a little then, and now after rereading it, I, I have to admit, Michael was absolutely right. The story started out great in Action 855. It was fun, a little murky, and then it descended into a slop immediately after that. Once again, we start out with a Paul Clark flashback for no real reason, and we end with a warm, fuzzy moment with Paul and Clark. That just feels forced, awkward, and heavy-handed. And when I think about Paul and Clark, I think of Superman for All Seasons and the scene where Clark joins his father to look at the Kansas sunset. 
And he asks if Pa ever gets tired of the sight, and Pa says, never. And that is a warm, fuzzy moment that hit the right pitch. Pa flying, hitting Doomsday, dispensing advice to Bizarro is just a hard pill to swallow. I get the intent, but I do wish Johns and Donner didn't feel the need to punch us in the face with it repeatedly. A good writer will embed these moments in the structure of a story seamlessly. It's not a good idea to stop the story completely and darn near break the fourth wall to communicate your point. The entire story could have been worked really well as a single issue or even two issues since the middle of the three could have been completely removed. But we get a stretched out story over three full issues like a torture victim from the Middle Ages being strung out on the rack. I do disagree with Mr. Bailey on one point. I rather enjoyed the art of Eric Powell. True, it wasn't the norm, but neither was the story, and it added some fun visuals to an otherwise tired story. So kudos to Eric Powell and to Jeff and Johns, Jeff Johns and Richard Donner, I say boo. Both of you are better than this. So based on the weakness of the story, but the fun of the art, I give Action Comics 857 a rating of... Wait for it. Quarter bin. This issue was fine for completionists, but even in trade form, the story arc as a whole will let you down and fall flat on its face. But the art is fun. And moving on to the next book up this week, Superman number 668. And like its predecessor, Action Comics 857, this was also cover dated early December 2007, but actually went on sale a little bit earlier on October 10th, 2007. This issue is entitled The Hunt, written by Kurt Busiek, penciled by Rick Leonardi, inked by Daniel Green, lettered by Richard Starkings, colored by Peter Pantazis. The cover was actually uh, penciled by Renato Guedes and inked by Jose Wilson Malagues, and edited by Matt Idelson with associate editor Nachi Castro. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And this was reprinted in Superman, the third Kryptonian trade paperback. And the cover for Superman 668 shows the Man of Steel alongside Batman because, well, the Bat must sell books. In the background is a large feigned face with beady alien eyes and jaundiced skin, the face of a dominator. Inside the issue, we are greeted by a ship traveling through space. And inside that ship, a Klingon knockoff alien bathed in the red light of the ship's cabin gets a status update on the adult Kryptonian's whereabouts on Earth. And at that moment, he's traveling at a high velocity towards a small continent. This leads us to Superman bursting in on the Dominators, a race of aliens that are interested in genetically enhancing their race, who have a lab near Hunan in the South China Sea. One of the Dominators calls out that Superman is approaching the Central Power Core, which the Man of Steel thanks for pointing out his target, and Superman demolishes the Dominator lab and tosses the aliens into space as the Chinese military rushes in to rescue the survivors of the experimentation. But this is not the entire reason Superman busted into the lab. He dials up Batman on a headset and tells the Dark Knight that this was another dead end, and there's no sign of the third Kryptonian, which Superman has apparently been searching for, for weeks. Not sure when he found the time with that, what with Arion, Kryptonian invasions, and more, and we're treated to a flashback of the auctioneer claiming that there is a third Kryptonian on Earth and the elimination of Power Girl and Crypto as potential suspects since Crypto is off-planet and Peach's makeup is of Earth-2 Kryptonian, 
which doesn't jive with the auctioneer's scanners. As Superman is flying back home, he comes across his foster son, Christopher Kent, flying around in his school uniform. Wow. Wow. That must spoil part of the ending to Last Son. Since Christopher is still here, and Superman has had time to seek out the third Kryptonian, that must mean that Chris stays around after the end of the storyline. Wait. What? Why do I hear Michael Bailey laughing? What? Is there some joke that I'm not aware of? Surely, surely there couldn't be a continuity error this big, right? Oh, well, we'll get to that. Anyway, Superman comes upon Christopher, who's frustrated with having to hide his powers and being laughed at it as a result. Superman reasons that A, Christopher can't be the third Kryptonian since he arrived after the auctioneer, and B, Christopher is challenged, since Clark's powers weren't really as developed at that age, which lands the two, leads the two to Batman. Well, in the Batcave, where Bruce is hanging out with Robin, and Tim is startled when the perimeter alarm goes off, and Batman claims calms down his partner by explaining that their biometric sensors have not been calibrated for Christopher yet. Batman calls Batman, or pardon me, Superman calls Batman out, saying that Bruce has been experimenting with ways to stop Superman ever since the kryptonite ring was stolen and destroyed. Batman tries to act coy, but finally breaks down and explains that, yeah, he's been working with some red sun radiation, which doesn't drain Superman's powers, but actually cuts off access to them. Superman asks Batman if he can make a very small projector, small enough to fit in a pig iron watch. Pig iron, the strong hog of steel from Captain Carrot and his amazing zoo crew. Phenomenal. Look it up if you don't have any. But Robin keeps Chris busy while Batman works on that projector, and the process takes about an hour. And then Superman puts the watch on Christopher, and it works, because it makes Christopher feel tired and saggy and slow. Robin once again hangs with Chris as Superman and Batman get down to the business of searching out the third Kryptonian. Batman has been monitoring any unusual activity, which may have extraterrestrial involvement. He flags those that are unclear for Superman to investigate personally. While looking for the scans, he spots a collapsing bridge in Virginia, which sure is a job for Superman. And this time the Man of Steel allows Chris to tag along, as he does his whole saving the day thing. And Batman and Robin remain in the cave, noting that, hey, Christopher's a neat kid. And then Batman notices that Chris left the watch behind. And as Superman saves the drivers on the bridge, the alien from the opening scenes monitors, noting that the media knows nothing of the boy, but there is a man, a boy, a girl, and a young woman. Once they have found all of them, they will strike, even if it means cleansing the entire planet of life to do so. And the monitors switch to Supergirl who is incredibly bored and wishing she had stayed on Candor, speaking out loud for some reason. Well, this trips the alien switch, and he asks, uh, have they found Candor as well? Have we, this redoubles his interest, and he declares that they must be found. But wait, didn't Candor blow up with Krypton? Hmm. Anyway, having saved the day with the bridge, Superman begins to leave the scene when Batman contacts him about a group of area teenagers who apparently smoked something, and i got to be clear, I am not making this up. They smoked something that gave them superhuman strength, allowing them to tear up a roadhouse before they all collapsed into comas. Batman is able to show Superman the toxicology report, which shows the molecules of the drug, and the molecules are dyed blue. And the makeup of the dye matches that of Superman's costume. And what this means is that the drug is quite possibly Kryptonian. 
And if they backtrack the movements of the youth, it just might lead them where they want to go. And the issue closes on a shot of a secluded house, and a lone vague figure crouched over a small patch of plants with a mailbox in the foreground that reads, K. Wells. Okay, there's a lot that's structurally wrong with this issue, but it stems from the fact that the last year's worth of stories have been a mixed-up jumble. I know that this isn't the, the 50s and 60s and the writers, artists, and editors. They don't work in the same office anymore, but we live in a day and age where communication is faster, sleeker, and more readily available than ever before. So who wasn't getting or giving the message that everything was off kilter? First of all, Christopher, show, pardon me, Christopher Kent shows up with the conclusion of Last Sun a long way off in real time, but a couple of episodes in podcasting time. So why include him? Why would you potentially spoil an ending or contradict an ending to a story in progress? Much like the action comic story we've been looking at. Also, you know what? Camelot Falls hasn't wrapped up yet. This issue, I mean, this storyline, it's like marrying somebody else before the divorce proceedings have really begun. And this is why the New Earth era gets a bad rap. It's confusing. Now, I've said my piece, and it won't be the last time you hear from me on the subject... So let's take a look at the issue itself. This was a Batman-Superman team-up issue in which really neither did anything but talk. It was a little bit too huggy and sentimental for me. So let's look at what happened. We found out Superman is looking for the third Kryptonian. Superman busts up the Dominators, mostly off-panel. Batman makes a watch for Christopher. Superman saves a bridge, and we get a slight tease of the third Kryptonian. Now, for those of you who caught the K. Wells reference right on, for those of you that didn't, be ready next week for some education. And let me bring all these thoughts together so it's not a tangential nightmare. Um, nothing happened. The story doesn't fit into what's going on in the books, and we get a fleeting look at a generic alien stolen from Farscape and an appearance from Batman that is yawn-inducing. So, what was good about this issue, you ask? Chris's interplay with Robin was charming as well as the fact that the watch had a reference to pig iron. I'm a big fan of that. The interplay between Superman and Batman when Soup's calls Bat out on the research was also pretty dang funny. He's kind of like, look, Bruce, I know you've been trying to kill me. No, 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 Bruce. Okay, okay, maybe a little bit. Okay, sorry. It's what I do. I'm Batman. But uh, there really wasn't anything here to grab onto as a whole. I really hate that this is becoming a regular complaint in the books, because I sound like a broken record, but it is what it is. The issue did suggest some interesting concepts. A Kryptonian drug? A red sun ray projector? All I'm saying is if I were writing the books, if nothing else, the red sun projector would have been explored a lot more. Because how more convincing would Clark's disguise be if he could get a, you know, a paper cut or a bruise from running into a desk? But we only get vague suggestions and really just a setup for a story. So I give this wish you a week, wait for the trade rating, because it does set up the story, but it just doesn't tell the story. And you can do both at the same time. For now, let's put this one back in the bag and board and continue uh, the discussion we started last week. We started looking at the Fourth World Saga by exploring a little bit of Darkseid's family tree. This laid a good foundation, kind of gave a little bit of an overview, which this week I'm going to build upon. Now keep in mind... When looking at the new gods, the fourth world, they could honestly support a podcast on their own. It's dense, there's a lot to it, 
So just to be clear, this is a brief, abridged look, just a bit of an overview at the high points, not a it's extensive, exhaustive coverage. And the entire universe of the fourth world or the new gods, I mean, it was created by Jack the King Kirby. Maybe you've heard of him. He, uh, you know, he co-created co- co- uh, some, you know, underground indie books known as Fantastic Four, Captain America, the Hulk, and the Fantastic Four. And at this time, Kirby had been working for Marvel off and on since it was timely, since uh, almost the inception. And he really felt like he was being treated unfairly. After all, he was creating or co-creating a lot of characters and not getting any copyright control over them. So he went to the Distinguished Competition, taking two years to make an exclusive deal with them to come to the other side. And once on the staff, Kirby chose to work on Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen. And this was a book at the time that had this revolving creative team. It wasn't quite stable, so Kirby felt that he could take that book without really costing anyone their jobs. That's the kind of guy Kirby was. And Kirby used the Jimmy Olsen comic to introduce his fourth world concepts, such as Darkseid that we looked at last week. And really, the entire idea that Kirby had was so far ahead of its time that it's eerie. Kirby saw a decline in the newsstand distribution system, and he wanted to make a more self-contained epic that would span several comic titles, but at the same time remain interlocked. And the eventual goal was to collect an entire saga into one volume, which would be something that you would see more on a bookshelf than a long box. And there were three core books in the saga, The New Gods, Mr. Miracle, and The Forever People. And of course, Jimmy Olsen, Superman's pal. So let's briefly touch upon what we covered last week before moving forward. After the death of the old gods, the planet Urgrund was split into two separate planets, New Genesis, which is beautiful and utopian, overseen by the High Father, and Apocalypse, a dark, fiery place ruled with an iron fist by Darkseid. To keep the peace between the two planets, an arrangement known as the Pact was made, in which the ruler of each planet trades a sun with the other two rays. And what we saw last week was Darkseid handed over his son Orion to the High Father, while High Father handed over Scott Free, also known as Mr. Miracle. So, who is the High Father? That seems like a good place to start. Um, he's a dark side's opposite. High Father's real name is Isaiah, and he reigns benevolently over the planet of New Genesis. The, the High Father really is, he's wise, he's calm, he's quiet. He is the exact opposite of Darkseid in every way. He's kind of like Zeus, Odin, and Yoda, all rolled into one ball of awesome. In fact, the High Father is able to consult with the Source which is kind of like a cross between God and the Source, and, and pardon me, and the Force from Star Wars. Kind of a, well, it's the Force, call it what it is. Now the Source is at the edge of the known galaxy, protected by what's known as the Source Wall, which we've been seeing in Superman Batman. The Wall, over time, has become made up of the bodies of would-be conquerors and the curious who go seeking it out. Usually simply touching the Wall ends you up with this fate, buried alive. You're still alive, but you're a statue. Which would suck. And as mentioned last week, the High Father is the biological father of Mr. Miracle. And the adopted father of Orion. And the two children were traded to keep the pact. And High Father was able to actually tame the nearly feral Orion. With the help of Hyman's creation, the Mother Box. It's a very important piece of equipment. The Mother Box is kind of like a celestial ultra-deluxe iPhone. It's made with the mysterious element X... 
And a mother box is essentially a sentient supercomputer that's portable. I mean, the thing is able to access the energy of the source, relay information, as well as bring about physical changes, such as Orion's change from a monster to a handsome man. And the mother box can also open the main, it's basically the main means of transportation for the uh, apocalyptic uh, new gods. Uh, that is the boom tube. Now, a boom tube is kind of like a controlled black hole that teleports people and things from point A to point B. And so that's an easy method to trans, you know, transfer. Now, High Father, going back to him, after reigning over New Genesis uh, for many ages, he was killed by the God of War Ares in the Genesis miniseries, and succeeded by Tachyon, who was a being of that was able to be a conduit of the Source itself. And meanwhile, Darkseid remained the ruler of the hellish planet Apocalypse, where Scott Free, Mister Miracle, was raised. And Mr. Miracle was raised primarily by Granny Goodness, we mentioned last week, who's in charge of training the elite soldiers of Apocalypse. And Goodness ran, she ran a training facility where the, they, we start as children, and they are tortured and brainwashed, all done in a mocking of child-rearing. It's sadistic. And this is how female, uh, Darkseid's female furies are trained. The Furies are incredibly volatile and vicious female warriors. They're a lot, lot like Amazons, but with no sense of mercy, no sense of honor. And the Furies are extremely elite. And in, this is in stark contrast to essentially the stormtroopers of the new god world, the Parademons. There may be a lot of them, but they're about as dumb as they come. And basically these are the most cruel, sociopathic citizens of Apocalypse... Basically, they're chosen, they're given a glider and a rifle, and told to be a soldier. Now, this was originally intended to be a, a two-part look. <laughs> and uh, really, we've kind of got an overview here, Parademons. I just want to point out that Mr. Miracle actually ended up marrying one of the female Furies, and that was Big Barda. And Mr. Miracle is the only one to ever escape from one of Granny Goodness's uh, orphanage. And that's kind of, I mean, I guess that's stock and trade. He is one of the world's greatest escape artists, after all. But as I mentioned, this was supposed to be a two-part series, and I wanted to hit most of the high points, but I realized when I looked at the, the a certain section that, really, I need to cover that on its own. And as I, as I stated next, you know, right up front, the fourth world could support its own podcast, and there is a lot that I wasn't able to cover just for the sake of, of our time, yours and mine, and your sanity. Uh, so next week, we'll be looking specifically at the Forever People. And, you know, luckily looking ahead, I realize that that really comes in well with some of the books we'll be covering next week. And I really would have liked to uh, look at the social structure of Apocalypse and some of the storylines. But hopefully somewhere out there, somebody decides that, hey, this could make a good podcast, a good fourth world podcast. And... I just had to settle for the, some high points, and then next week we'll look at the Forever People and how they tie into Superman's mythology. Now, as to why the Fourth World characters are even being covered at all on a Superman podcast, and why they're included on the shelves of my Superman collection, simply put, while the Fourth World really stands on its own merits, it's its own thing, its connecting thread to the DC Universe has been, and really still is, the Superman mythology. And they become a part of his tapestry, uh, beginning by way of Jimmy Olsen, and next week when we talk about the Forever People, we'll get a clearer idea in terms of the more thematic connections. But it really was, uh, I always look at Darkseid as the 
the big cosmic bad for Superman and one of the best villains. And then that entire cast of characters fits in pretty flawlessly with the Superman universe. So I've always considered it part. And uh, I think it's justified because they did make their first appearances in Jimmy Olsen. And mostly when you think about dark side fighting somebody, it's usually Superman. But that's just me. If you disagree, of course, you can always email me. Now, until next week, I'm going to put this story down. It was a very quick you know, overview, but there's so much. I mean, really, I wish somebody would do a, a fourth world podcast. But until next week, when we look at the forever people, um, let's move on to the rest of the episode, beginning after the, after the promo with Superman Confidential. So stay with me uh, for the second half of Superman Forever Radio, episode 38. And before I forget, we will not be doing an Elsewhere in the DC Universe until next week when we do wrap up December of 2007. So here's a promo, and then I'll be right back with you in just one moment. Hey everyone, my name is Michael Bailey. And I'm Jeffrey Taylor. And we host a podcast called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Presented by the Superman homepage. On the show... Wait, wait, wait. What? This just isn't working out for me. It's not bombastic enough. We need something epic. Like what? Welcome to From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, presented by the Superman homepage. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And I am Michael Bailey. From Crisis to Crisis chronicles the adventures of Superman. Wait, wait, from... wait, 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 wait. I'm just not feeling this. I'm just wondering how there's a needle scratching sound when all of this is clearly digital. Look, all we need to say is that this is the, a trailer for a show called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast presented by the home, Superman homepage. My name is Michael Bailey. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And every week we give in-depth synopsis and reviews for just about every Superman book published between Man of Steel number 1 in 1986 and Adventures of Superman number 649 in 2006. We also talk about the related Superman media, what was happening in the rest of the world, and when these comics were published and what else was going on in the DC Universe. The show drops every Thursday-ish at the Superman homepage, which is located at www.supermanhomepage.com. From Crisis to Crisis is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, located at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. So join Jeffrey and I each week as we explore Superman during the post-crisis era, which includes Exile, Panic in the Sky, Doomsday, The Marriage, and Beyond. And write into the show at FromCrisisToCrisis at gmail.com and hear it read on the air, eventually, because we get behind on that sort of thing. Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Side effects from From Crisis to Crisis include loss of money from buying back issues, a desire to read 20-year-old comic books, nausea, drowsiness, pizza, blurred vision, upset stomach, a desire to kick puppies and kittens, and backache from lifting boxes of Superman comics. If the excitement of From Crisis to Crisis lasts more than four hours, seek immediate medical attention. And picking up the second half of this week's episode is Superman Confidential number 7, which had a cover date of, guess what, early to December 2007. But this one actually would have hit stands in August of 2007, August 29th to be exact. 
This issue is Welcome to Murtropolis, The Conclusion. Written by Justin Gray and Jimmy Palmiotti, penciled by Coy Turnbull. Inked by Sandra Hope, letter Hope. Lettered by Travis Lanham, colored by J.D. Smith, with a cover artist of Andy Park. Edited by Michael Martz, with associate editor Janine Schaefer. Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And the cover of the book shows Superman posed, ready to fly out of a phone booth. It's iconic, it's painted, it immediately catches the eye. It's one of my favorite images from this era. And cracking the book open, we get a flashback that was missing last issue, where Superman arrives to answer a distress call from Laurie Lamaris, who was possessed by an Incan goddess as a result of coming into contact with a cursed necklace. And with her new powers, Laurie sank Metropolis, turned its citizens into people, and Superman into a tyrant. But as the caption tells us, she made one fatal mistake. She forgot to kill Superman's mortal enemy. And the story kicks in from there, right where we left off with issue number six, with Murr Lex Luthor having just snapped the neck of Lois Lane right in front of a brainwashed Superman, Laurie Lamaris, and Murr Jimmy Olsen. Not really knowing why, Superman begins to attack Luthor, claiming that he hates his bald nemesis, despite not knowing him. And Luthor cracks out some kryptonite on Superman, which creates a stalemate of sorts, as Laurie puts a knife to Jimmy's throat. And out of nowhere, Lois Lane smacks Laurie on the back of the head, giving Jimmy a chance to reason with Superman, as the Lois robot that Luthor killed just it hasn't fully jarred the Man of Steel's memory. Laurie and Lois have a cat fight, as Jimmy finally seems to be getting through to his pal, but Superman has not been reverted to his normal form. So Luthor pulls out the kryptonite again, and Superman crushes the rock, while it's still in Luthor's hand. Ouch. And Laurie gloats that Luthor's plan has failed, and Superman belongs to her. Big Blue tells Laurie that he wouldn't go that far, and proceeds to blast the Incan necklace with his heat vision. This ticks off Laurie as she threatens to return Metropolis to the surface without charging the Mer people back, and Lois gets, manages to get a good snag on the locket, where the chain breaks off of Laurie's necks due to a weakened from weakening from the heat vision. But Luther decides that the locket is far too powerful for Lois, and punches her in the face. Let me make sure that sinks in. Lex Luthor punches Lois Lane in the face. In the face! Hank Pym has spent a couple of decades being laughed at for this kind of thing. But Luther's bright idea backfires, as the amulet can only be held by a woman, or the spell breaks and the Murtropolis begins to crumble, leading Luthor to wonder if this was what it felt like on Krypton. And Jimmy tackles Luthor as Lois tries to get the amulet back on, but the city is still crumbling apart, and people have now started to revert to normal and are drowning. Superman tells Lori that she's strong enough, and as Superman digs into the Earth's crust to send molten lava flowing upwards, Lori concentrates on saving Metropolis, speaking to the Incan goddess, and telling her that even if it kills Lori, she will not let these people die. The lava works, and the city raises out of the water. Superman solidifies the lava by using a gust of freeze breath, and with the city raised and the citizens return to normal, Luthor slinks off unnoticed as Lori begins to be attacked by the amulet, and then Lois, rip, Lois rips it off Lori's neck again, even though the chain was broken, and tosses it to Superman, who surrounds it in an ice cocoon so he doesn't actually touch it, and tosses the amulet into deep space. And back at the Daily Planet, 
Terry, uh, Perry White wonders what the world would do without Superman. And Jimmy suggests that they would all be living in an aquarium somewhere. And Perry tells him not to bring that up again because he still can't get the smell of fish off of him. Perry asks, where's Clark? And Lois explains that Clark is saying goodbye to an old friend. In Centennial Park, Laurie and Clark talk about their feelings and the fact that Lois may never forgive her. And well, Superman assures Laurie that Lois isn't as devious as she thinks. And then here's an emergency. With a peck on the cheek, Superman says goodbye to Laurie and flies back into the never-ending battle. Wow. This issue was uh, special. Let's talk about some of the glaring potholes. Plot holes, not potholes. We're not busting our tires on this issue. But let's talk about some of those glaring plot holes. A. Superman heats up the chain of the necklace to a breaking point, which Lois uses as snag off of Lori's neck. Then, within just a page, the chain seems to have repaired itself because it's on Lois's neck. Wait, what? If it's broken, it's broken. And I'll even concede before the emails come in that the amulet and the chain are magic-based and they could repair themselves. But if that was the case, there needed to be a line of dialogue or a caption, and there wasn't. So let's move on. B. Where are the other heroes? I know that Superman Confidential is supposed to be earlier in Superman's career. He and Lois Lane have a relationship at this point, which is unclear if they're married or etc., and somebody in the world had to notice that Metropolis, one of the biggest, most major of major cities in the world, seems to have, well, sank off the face of the earth. I mean, Batman would have checked it out, and let's not forget the obvious, Aquaman. And before you say that this was before Aquaman's career started, let me point out that King Shark appeared in this issue. Or last issue, I should be more correct. So... At least that villain was established, especially because Superman pointed out that King Shark was a long way from Hawaii. So somebody had to have noticed Metropolis was gone, but didn't. And here's another one. And this has to do with the art. On page 17, Superman's costume suddenly becomes a turtleneck. Not just in one paddle, panel, which could be a coloring issue, something like that, but for two whole pages. And then reverts back to normal. I know that Koi Turnbull has access to the DC Comics design guides, most artists do, as well as the fact that it's freaking Superman. The costume neckline has been, you know, slightly tweaked, but he's only the first superhero, the one that originated the tights and cape look. You're drawing Superman, what's up with the turtleneck, what's with the collar? The neckline does not go all the way up into a collar yet. And for Turnbull, you know, when you think about this being retro, that change would have been years away, not months away like it is now. So just, you pretty much just like last issue, it had the silliness of the Silver Age with none of the fun or the charm. And just really inconsistent writing. There's a lot of things that just didn't make sense. We don't know what the conflict between Laurie Lamaris and the Incan Goddess is. The Incan Goddess really doesn't appear. It's only named towards the latter half of this issue. And then kind of thrown in as a deus ex machina once again. And it's just really horrible, inconsistent writing and art. And I really like the series as a whole. These two issues you can do without. So it's the second ever Leave It on the Shelf rating. And I promise you, your collection will not suffer for not having this turd in it. Trust me, I'm Superman's pal. And finally, wrapping out our... our our books this week is our one cover dated December, just plain December 2007 book that actually went on sale October 24th, 
Superman Batman number 41. And this is where a lot of the new God's knowledge we just learned will come into play. You thought it was all for nothing. And uh, this issue is Purgatory, which is part of the Torment storyline. Written by Alan Burnett. Penciled by Dustin Gein. Inked by Derek Friedolfs. Colored, pardon me, lettered by Rob Lay. Colored by Randy Mayer. Edited by uh, Eddie Berganza. Assistant editor was Adam Schlagman. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Batman was created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. And this is reprinted in the Superman Batman Torment hardcover or trade paperback. Take your pick. And the cover for this one shows Batman and Darkseid in the background looking on as the High Father stabs Superman in the chest with his staff. How charming. And when we left off last issue, Batman was trapped on the planet Tartarus with Orion's wife Becca and a Superman controlled by Darkseid and Dasad. Now surrounded by parademons and rampaging hormones, Bats and Becca remain phased out, invisible in both sight and sound to their pursuers. The two of them must fight their obvious attraction to one another in really, really close quarters. As the parademons finally give up and move on, Batman panics because he feels like he can't be left alone with Becca. And so Superman jumps out of the phase, or pardon me, Batman jumps out of the phase and catches his breath and demands that Becca tell him what exactly is going on. And Becca explains that she's a god. She's defined by a power. And for her, it's the creation of emotional and physical desire. And the only way to stop it is to consummate it. Which for Batman is out of the question. And he's explaining all of the mental disciplines at his disposal. And that's when he realizes she has gone. She's poof, gone. It must suck to get a taste of your own medicine, Bats. Out in space, Superman flies toward the source wall to retrieve High Father's staff for Darkseid. And Superman is able to get the staff from the wall thanks to some metal gloves and return it to Darkseid and Dasad. Elsewhere, Batman is nearing the planet's surface when he comes upon the room where Jonathan Crane is being tortured by Clot. Batman punches the snot out of Clot and then starts in on Crane demanding to know where Superman is. In space, Dasad uses the High Father's staff to create a boom tube to end all boom tubes and sends Superman right into it. The tube leads beyond the source wall into the source itself. And as the boom tube closes, boom tube closes behind Superman, Dasad regrets that the Man of Steel is not aware of his horrid fate, of being essentially buried alive. And as Dasad cackles, Becca takes aim with a sort of sniper bazooka, blows up the entire bluff that Dasad and Darkseid were both standing on. But when the smoke clears, both are gone. Not obliterated, but rather disappeared. And from a safe vantage point, Darkseid and Dasad spot Becca, just as she's phasing out of sight. And Dasad uses the staff to freeze everything on the planet's surface, including Becca. Somehow, off-panel, Batman has procured himself a vehicle and manages to drop down into the cold to pick up his frozen paramour. Somewhere else entirely. Superman wakes up in a hospital bed, draped in a hospital gown that has his famous insignia on it. When Superman looks out the window, he sees a location that's a dreamlike mishmash of Smallville, the Kent Farm, Krypton, and Metropolis. I mean, Monel is crossing the street, waving at a passerby who's in Kryptonian garb as Pete and Lana go into the soda shop and the Daily Planet towers in the background. As Lois pops into the hospital room to visit Clark, so do a ton of heroes, villains, and family. From Batman to Flash to Jor-El to Mixus Pitalik, pretty much the gang's all here. And one by one, they each visit Superman's bedside, beginning with Batman, who mentions that Superman gave him a broken sternum, cracked ribs, and a punctured lung. 
Superman doesn't understand why he would hurt his friend, and Batman explains that it was Desaad, who was back in the line somewhere. So Jimmy Olsen, Perry White, Lex Luthor and the Joker, Wonder Woman, Maxima and Encantadora, Desaad and Granny Goodness, Crypto and Supergirl, even Starro visits, bearing a muffin basket. I can't make that part up. And when I said the gang's all here, I mean everybody, including Zebra Batman and Rick Radomsky. You may know him as uh, either the owner of Radomsky Hardware or the crazed man running away from Superman in the cover of Action Comics number one. Superman smiles and says that he remembers him and he remembers all of them. And then Superman finds himself floating in a black void in his costume once again. Superman decides that it was all a dream, but a giant celestial version of Highfather tells him that it was no dream. It was Superman's life, and it is now over. Okay, here's the deal. This vast majority of the issue was okay. We had more Becca and Batman lusting after each other, which was thankfully explained a little bit more. But mostly, Batman wanders around the planet, Desaad has the staff, not Darkseid, And then you have the last third of the issue, which is the good part. Superman being visited by people he has met throughout his life. That's cool. Adding the fact that Starro brought muffins, which made me laugh out loud, was awesome. Along with Zebra Matman, Zebra Matman, along with Zebra Batman and Rick Radomski. That was a touch of genius. And uh, as I've stated, this story has been on life support for the last couple of issues. Just popping out exposition and sexual tension. And suddenly with the third act of this issue, we get some great stuff. I was kind of in awe of the dreamscape that combined the main locations of Superman's life, and I really wish the issue had more of this. But that could have gotten old too, so maybe better this way. Overall, the issue was fairly weak on structure. Batman more or less wanders around, finds Crane, and then somewhere in there gets a vehicle to rescue Becca. Superman stands around, flies through space a bit, And then we get the good stuff. And the art looked more jagged than the last few issues. I'm getting the sense that Gein is calling Alan Burnett, just saying, wrap it up already, I don't even have time to warm up a hot pocket. However, the cover looks great, I must say. And once again, we get a few grandstanding pages, such as Superman's encounter with the Highfather at the end. So a great third act, it does not uh, an issue make. It doesn't make an issue good. And I give Superman Batman number 41 a rating of wait for the trade. And the story will flesh itself out as a whole, but it was clearly written for reading the trade paperback form, and that's it. It's done in a way that detracts from the issue. So with that wrapped up, let's move on to, uh, well, another of Superman's ex-girlfriends, since we already looked at Laurie Lamaris this week, in this week's episode of Superman the Animated Series, which we will look at right after this promo. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Superman in the Bronze Age is a weekly podcast following the adventures of Superman from 1970 to the Burn reboot in 1986. Follow along at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com.
And we are back, ladies and gents, looking uh, at the latest, well, not the latest episode, but we're looking at the 11th episode of Superman, the animated series. And that means we're almost at the end of season one, two more episodes. And this one is entitled My Girl. It aired November 23rd, 1996 on the WB. It was written by Hilary J. Bader, directed by Yuchiro Yano. It starred Tim Daly as Superman Clark Kent, Dana Delaney as Lois Lane, Clancy Brown as Lex Luthor, Lisa Edelstein as Marcy Graves, Jolie Fisher as Lana Lang, Larry Drake as Mr. Elan, Laurie Frazier as Lizzie, Valerie Bromfeld as Big Susan, and Lee Magnuson as the terrorist. And this episode opens at a fashion show with models showing off the latest clothing. Lois and Clark are in attendance. And so it seems is Lex Luthor along with his new lady friend, the trendy fashion designer L.L. And Clark recognizes her immediately as Lana Lang, who we haven't seen since the second part of the of the pilot. And just then, the the press swarms the two of the, the of them, and by that I mean Lois, or pardon me, Lana and Lex. And Lois is surprised that Clark knows her, and he explains that they used to date in high school. To which Lo- <laughs> Lois awesomely says, "Well, she's moved up in the world." causing an awkward moment until she explains, from Smallville. And uh, Lana works the room, and Lex blatantly checks out her butt. No, watch the episode, he really does. Alone, Lex is flagged down by a gentleman named Mr. Elan, who resembles Steve Buscemi. And Elan tells Lex that the buyers are definitely interested, but they want a demonstration. So Lex agrees to the demonstration as Lana's backstage, prepping a model for the runway. And alone, Lana gets accosted by a muscle-bound strong woman and a smaller partner, which is going to be Lizzie and Big Susan. And they snatch Lana up and make a run for it as Clark happens into the room because Lana is wearing some amazing jewels on her, her dress. The kidnappers have Lana in a glass elevator, which begins rising to the top floor where the thieves plan on stealing Lana's dress, adorned with those jewels, and the smaller of the two yells, Look out! and pulls a gun. Not on Lana! but on Superman, who is flying outside the glass elevator. The kidnapper pops off a couple of rounds, which they do what bullets do with Superman and bounce right off. And to get the Man of Steel off their trail, they actually chuck Lana out of the elevator after grabbing the jewels, so Superman has to save her from becoming pudding on the sidewalk. Why they didn't just grab the jewels and run to begin with, I'm not sure, but you know what? It goes for a nice action sequence, because... Superman has to dive down and save Lana from becoming pudding on the sidewalk. And with Lana in his arms, Superman sweeps back up to the sky and detaches the elevator from the building, causing massive property damage, and hangs it from a catwalk with the kidnappers inside. Once the excitement is over, Lana critiques Superman's outfit, calling it primary, but adds that it works in a superhero-ish kind of way. She guesses that Martha sewed it for him and Ask Clark how his folks are before Lex and his security come rushing to aid her on the catwalk. Superman takes off into the night and Lex admits that this is the first time that he's actually been happy that the alien showed up. Later at Lana's high-rise apartment, Lana explains that she was able to put together that Clark had all these amazing powers in high school. Then Superman shows up. It's not rocket science. And she makes Clark a root beer float. And Superman changes the subject. He's there to warn her about Lex. And Clark explains that the man Luthor was talking to at the show, Mr. Elon, was a known arms dealer. And he thinks Lex is selling through him, unloading a stockpile. Lana shrugs it off and she says she likes powerful men and Clark Kent is the only man she could never pin down. 
So Superman asks Lana, just be careful for me. And Lana responds by saying, for you, anything. And as Superman flies off into the night, the camera pans down to reveal that Lana's apartment is being watched by Luther's bodyguard, Mercy Graves. The next day, Lex grills Lana in his office as to why Superman was in her apartment. And Lana says that Superman wanted to make sure she was all right and to warn her about Lex. Lana evades Lex by saying she likes bad boys. She likes bad boys. And as Lana leaves, the arms dealer arrives and Lana eavesdrops as he tells Lex that the demonstration has been set up down by the old mill at 11 o'clock. And as Lana eavesdrops on Lex, Lana is in turn watched again by Mercy. Mercy talks to Lex, telling him that Lana heard everything, and Lex shrugs it off, saying that a woman like that would of course be interested in a man like him. A great many things. She couldn't have possibly figured out what it meant. But in the stairwell, Lana uses her cell phone to call Clark and fills him in on Lex's shady deal. So at the old mill by the railroad tracks, the arms dealer, Mr. Elon, is showing off a gun that shoots microwave beams that incinerates its target. And the two potential buyers begin shooting trees up left and right when they spot a lone deer running from the chaos. One of the buyers takes aim, but the deer is saved by Superman, who blocks the beam. And a thankful Bambi runs off into the night. Or the day. Sorry. As usual, the terrorists, they fire at Superman and nothing happens. And Superman puts them down with a well-thrown log and then flies after Elon himself. So, but cornered, the arms dealer points the gun first at Superman, who warns, hey, it's been done. And then Elon uses some quick thinking and blasts a railroad bridge just as a train is approaching conveniently. Again, that's the second train. If you watch this episode... The train that we're about to talk about is a second train in the sequence. Superman yanks a couple of rails from the ground and uses them to aid the train over the bridge, but the D, but Mr. Elon gets away and Superman tells Lana that the terrorists aren't talking. But Lana pleads with Clark to be his new sidekick, his Dr. Watson or Batgirl. And Superman rebuffs the idea, and Lana admits that she still has feelings for him, and then lays an awesome kiss right on the Man of Steel. Apparently forgetting who Luthor is, she's spied upon telescopically by Mercy and Lex, and Lex is pretty ticked to see this kiss. On Lex's rooftop terrace the next day, Lana and Lex have some lunch, and Lex tells her that he's glad that she could fit him in. Elon calls to tell Lex about a problem with the deal in Central City, but Lex tells him to take care of it, and there had better not be any surprise visitors this time. Once again... Clark, Lana calls Clark at her, from her apartment, where she's dressed to the nines in a slinky black dress. Clark answers on his car phone and gives him the info that the merchandise isn't in Metropolis, it's in Central City. Lana pleads with Clark that it could be like this all the time, but Clark is more upset that she's still spying on Lex when he told her to cut it out. Lana tells Clark to chill as her doorbell rings. Lex's limo shows up, and Lana tells Clark that Central City is 500 miles away, and he should schedule a flight. Clark actually pulls into an alley, pops off his Clark kit clothes, and flies off as Superman. Meanwhile, Lana slips into the limo and finds that Mercy is not the driver, but rather Mr. Elan. The limo speeds off into the Metropolis traffic. At the LexCorp building, Mercy informs Lex that Elan has picked up Lana, and Lex blasts at Mercy to just get out. Elan has taken Lana to a lead smelting plant, where a spigot pours molten metal into molds, and Lana is placed into one of the molds. Elon explains that the plant is fully automated, and Superman likely can't use his X-ray vision to see inside the plant as the conveyor belt begins to move Lana closer and closer to the spigot. Superman crashes through the wall and admits, yeah, he couldn't see them, but his hearing's pretty good. 
and the lawn runs off just as the mold Lana is in comes under the spigot. And at the last second, Superman blocks the lead, which pours over his invulnerable body. Invulnerable body. I can't talk today. He tucks Lana away, snapping her bindings off, and explains that Superman knew it had to be a setup, as Lana had heard way, way too much. The two come under fire from the microwave gun, so Superman tucks Lana into an office where she'll be nice and safe. Except not, because the office is filled to the brim with explosives for no real apparent reason other than convenience. Superman goes looking for Mr. Elon, who uses his gun to dump an entire vat of lead on Superman. And this actually ends up flooding the plant and taking out several other vats in the, in the, in the wave. But the plan backfires on Elon as the flood tears down the catwalk he's standing on, too, leaving him dangling perilously over the molten lead. And the flood, of course, hits the office and Lana is in and smashes down the door. And Lana gets away by climbing the boxes of explosives to avoid being smelted as Superman struggles and gets pulled under. And Lana makes it to a hanging light fixture and calls out for help. With that, Superman grabs Mr. Elon and goes after Lana. And Superman pops up from the molten lead as Lana has about a second to tell him that he's a mess before the light fixture snaps. As Superman flies into the air, grabbing Lana and getting both her and Mr. Elon to the safety outside, just in the nick of time as the explosives ignite and blow up the smelting plant. The next day, the cover of the Daily Planet shows Lex Luthor under investigation. Lana shows up at the office and tells Clark that she's heading to Paris to concentrate on her fashion career. And Clark tells Lana that he really cares for her, but she stops him and says that if he says she's like a sister to him, she'll go back to Lex. Clark assures Lana that she will find somebody special for her today, someday, and Lana says that she'll, he'll also find that special someone, somebody quiet, patient, and understanding. And just then, Lois yells out that Clark had better get his tail in into Perry's office because the two of them have an assignment. And with that, Lana leaves, telling Clark that if he ever changes his mind about her, to feel free to fly on up. And as she walks away, Clark looks longingly before Leo, Lois yells out again. And the episode closes as Clark sighs and goes back to work as a mild-mannered reporter. And the biggest thing thing that stands out in this episode is continuity in a good way with the show's premiere we saw lana very briefly in the smallville portion and it seemed to be irrelevant but she was sort of a decoration or just a reference but here we get it full circle yet again looking at this show's first season which we're on the verge of wrapping up everything stems from the premiere episodes metallo was set up brainiac and now the dynamic between lana and clark the show flows so well, it's cohesive within itself. And this is what makes me a fan of the show. It, it creates its own Superman independent mythology, but it's true to the character at the same time. And overall, beyond the continuity, this was a pretty straightforward Superman rescues damsel in stress, distress from Lex Luthor's machinations episode. But it's still fun despite one major glaring inconsistency. When Superman rescues Lana at the smelting plant, he is coated in molten metal. And yet, it doesn't burn her. Even if he grabbed her by a piece of clothing, the threads would have been singed away from the heat and he would have dropped her. But, it's just a gripe. I mean, it was a good rescue overall. And overall, just a, it was just an okay episode that fits in well with the show's continuity, but doesn't bring down the house. Jolie Fisher makes a sultry, sassy Lana Lang. And Larry Drake, he of L.A. Law and Dr. Giggles fame, makes a very slimy mystery lawn. It was a good episode, not great, and... With that, I will give it three S-Shields out of five. And, well, with that, we close another episode of Superman Forever Radio. As always, I thank you for listening, 
It's a pleasure to do this show, so I hope you're enjoying it as well. And I will be back next week to finish up the books for the second half of December 2007, including a look at Superman Prime and the Cyborg Superman, as well as the Forever People and Superwoman. So join me for episode 39, and until then, keep on fighting the never-ending battle. You can find Superman Forever Radio at supermanforever.com and on iTunes, where you can leave a review. Superman Forever Radio is a very proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, where you can find Superman podcasts from all eras of the Man of Steel, and it is located at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And I'd love to hear your thoughts, and there are several ways to contact the show. Drop me an email. The address is mail at supermanforever.com or follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Superman forever. That is Superman the number four ever. Also, the show is on Facebook. Simply go to facebook.com forward slash Superman forever radio and you can use the like button to follow that way. And finally, you can leave a voicemail for the show at 703-95-SUPER. Please keep the messages short and do not include personal information like phone numbers, etc., as these will be played on air. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Superman and all related characters, the distinctive likenesses thereof, and related elements are trademarks of DC Comics, a Warner Brothers entertainment company. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not gain profit from the images or related properties belonging to DC Comics or Warner Brothers Entertainment.